If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. First, of course, we have the Lunar Gateway, which is a space station slash spaceship that's positioned in orbit around the moon. So in addition to the Gateway, we have the Orion Module. Now, the Orion Module is designed for long-term use, so we're hoping to use that for missions far beyond the lunar environment. What could possibly be more exciting than returning astronauts to the moon and landing the first female astronaut on the lunar surface? Well, how about this? For NASA's Artemis Lunar Exploration Program, that is just going to be the beginning. Currently, NASA is preparing the technology that will ultimately return humans to the moon to learn, explore, and perhaps even set the stage for flights to Mars. NASA is planning three Artemis launches within the next few years, according to their website. And the third one, Artemis 3, will lay the groundwork for possible Mars flights in the future. Matt Wittall is Mission Design and Planetary Science at NASA. The following podcast is not in any way, shape, or form affiliated with nor endorsed by NASA. Matt, when we spoke in 2019, you were designing the logistics module for the Gateway, the lunar orbiter for Artemis. Oof, gives me chills just even saying that. Where are you right now on that project? Yeah, great question. We've been busy the past couple of years working with SpaceX, who we selected to help us with building the deep space logistics module. So we made a lot of good progress in setting our expectations with SpaceX and understanding their needs so that we can have a smooth project ahead of us. What happens next that you can tell me about? So right now we're waiting for the contract to be issued, and that's a political decision, so we're waiting for funding to come down the pipeline, and then we can kick things off. And that should happen any time in the next month. In the meantime, what happened recently was the hot fire test, and that was exciting to see. Can you tell me what was exactly going on? From the outside, it's just we're watching a rocket being tested, and we've got eight minutes. What was going on, and what did you get as end result for the research? Sure, yeah, that was really exciting. So we've been waiting on that hot fire test for quite a while. The SLS is the most powerful rocket ever built, and once we get to the Block 2, it'll be the largest rocket that's ever launched. So this was the core stage, which was the largest core stage of any rocket ever built as well. And so that hot fire test demonstrated that the SLS can perform as expected throughout the entire launch of an Artemis mission. And so as soon as that test was completed, we now have the phase to launch that rocket in reality. So it's going to go back, it's going to get refurbished and shipped out to Kennedy Space Center, where it's going to be matched with boosters and second stage and the Orion module and prepared for launch hopefully later this year. Exciting stuff. Now, when we say SLS, what is SLS? SLS is NASA's Next Generation Rocket. That's the Space Launch System. That's the one thing when you read material about Artemis is there are a lot of three-letter acronyms here and a little bit easy to get lost. When we look at the upcoming year, and actually before we do that, two things. First of all, I am not in any way, shape, or form affiliated with NASA. This is a disclaimer, I promised nor am I employed by them. I just think this is very cool stuff. Also, we talked in 2019 about the mission, but folks may not have heard what we talked about. So specifically, what are we looking at with Artemis? How many stages? What kind of a timeline? What are we doing? So Artemis 
is multi-pronged attack at colonizing the moon and getting people back to the moon. It's, it's more of a permanent settlement than we did in the Apollo program, and it's different for many reasons. First, of course, we have the Lunar Gateway, which is a space station slash spaceship that's positioned in orbit around the moon. This allows us to reuse certain modules when we go to the lunar surface and back, making it more sustainable and cost-effective to access the lunar surface. In addition to that, the Lunar Gateway, because of its unique orbit, allows access for smaller rockets. So you don't need a big SLS or a Saturn V to get to the Lunar Gateway. That means that commercial partners and international partners alike have access to the same facilities that NASA does. And this is important so that we can open up the moon to more partners. And the more people that you have going to the moon, the more interest you have, the more sustainable and long-term we can make that lunar habitation. So in addition to the gateway, we have the Orion module. Now, the Orion module is designed for long-term use, not just to the gateway and to the Artemis program, but beyond. So we're hoping to use that for missions far beyond the lunar environment. And of course, the infrastructure put in place for gateway is something that can be duplicated for Mars and beyond. Now, that's a key point because the entire purpose of us going to the moon instead of going straight to Mars is to test out our technology and build experience so that when we go to Mars, we have the reliability and the robustness in our mission design so that we can make a Mars mission successful and safe for our astronauts. What are some of the technologies right now that you're working on to make this safe, to make it so that we can. I was looking at the phases this morning, and we've got an uncrewed mission leaving, then we've got an orbit of the moon with Artemis II, and then we've got the rock star, which is Artemis III. What are some of the safety protocols you have to put in place before all this happens? Yeah, safety and risk is a big question. When designing missions into deep space, you have to build in a certain amount of robustness because it's extremely dangerous going into space and going into the moon and being cut off from everything that we have here on Earth. The moon and Mars are unbelievably far away. So building in safety in the mission is a big question, a very important concern. Speaking of specific technologies, you have to worry about radiation shielding from the astronauts. The further you get away from Earth, the less you have the Earth's magnetic field protecting you. So you need to build in some radiation shielding in there. In addition to that, the astronauts have to spend a lot of time working out. So you have to build a lot of a lot of human health considerations. I mean, the Orion capsule has an exercise bike built into it. We didn't have anything like that in Apollo because we've learned over the past 20 years of the International Space Station that astronauts, when spending a long time in space, they tend to lose a lot of muscle mass and even bone mass. So you need to make sure that they're staying healthy that entire time. In addition to that, we're working on technologies to make the moon more sustainable. Some of these are like what you talked about with the gentleman a few weeks ago, Mr. Check his name. Steve Jones, possibly? Yes, Mr. Steve Jones. So his work with the ISS and learning how to grow food in space, that's going to play an important role in colonizing the moon. The longer time you spend in these space missions, the more you have to worry about food and water. That's one advantage that the moon gives us, is that the lunar surface has been found to be rich in ice, especially in the South Pole. So we can harvest the water when we get there. That is just mind-blowing to me. Something I would never have thought of, and I read a report that you wrote about it recently, lunar dust. What kind of hazard does this provide for a spacecraft or any other kind of lunar mission? Yeah. Oh, thanks for checking into my work. Yeah, lunar dust is, is something we found out during the Apollo program is a real problem. And learning from Apollo 
we've seen that not only the dust on the surface is a problem, both through astronaut health and the function of machinery, but the high-velocity dust as well can pose a problem to not just local environments, but the really high-velocity stuff can land anywhere on the lunar surface. It's like a global bombardment of dust. And the larger your lander is, the more the problem that is. So we've been looking into solutions such as building lunar landing pads and protecting the astronaut shelters on the moon from lunar dust and radiation by putting some of that lunar regolith, the dirt, on top of it. So that's more about building safety into the mission as well. Of course, you make it look easy. It is not that simple. How do you determine where you're going to land on the moon? So that's a good question. One of the benefits of the Deep Space Gateway is that it provides access to anywhere on the lunar surface. However, the south pole of the moon is of specific interest to us. And that's because, like I mentioned, we discovered water there. And that means that a long-term habitation on the South Pole, or at least on the Moon, is certainly possible from that location. It's also very accessible, and it can communicate with the Lunar Gateway and then to Earth through the Lunar Gateway pretty much any time. What are, of course, anybody listening to this is going to be wondering, when? What are some of the dates for the rest of the year and getting into 2022 for Artemis? All right. So, I mean, the first date of interest is the Ingenuity helicopter on Mars. That's not directly connected to Artemis, but that's definitely something we should be looking out for. That's the first controlled flight of a man-made object on another planet. So it's kind of described as like a, like a Wright Brothers moment. And that's happening as soon as April 8th, so maybe even before this podcast gets published. Soon after that, you know, we have a lot of crewed missions to the International Space Station. Now, like I mentioned, commercial partners play an important role in accessing the Lunar Gateway for our long-term vision and, of course, the lunar surface as well. We've already issued contracts for commercial participation in the Artemis program in the Eclipse missions or commercial logistics payload services. Now, in connection with that, we have a lot of commercial deliveries and commercial manned missions to the International Space Station, which lay the groundwork for future Artemis missions. CRS-22 coming up in summer 2021, and Demo-2, that's SpaceX's Crew-2. That's coming up April 22nd. And human landing system should be issued later this year as well. Now, the big one, of course, like I mentioned before, is SLS. We're hoping to launch that by the end of the year. And that's a key, that's Artemis 1. That's a key point and a key feature of the Artemis program. But NASA is doing a lot of other things, not just Artemis. So keep an eye out on our feet. I mean, the X-57 Maxwell, that's the first all-electric plane. That's going to be flying on August 15th. Wow. And when you say keep an eye out on our feed, where did people tune into that before we go on here? Definitely. So you can follow NASA on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're all over the place. And a lot of the updates are posted all over the place. So at NASA. Once again, that's at NASA. Follow them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for the latest updates, both on the Artemis program and on the Mars Ingenuity helicopter. Now, Artemis 1 is an uncrewed flight. I'm going to do some exciting things, but I'd love to look at both that and then what Artemis 2 is going to be doing, because I did not realize that we have a lot of firsts on Artemis 2 as well. Could you kind of take me through those? Sure. So Artemis 1 is the first Artemis mission to go to the moon, but like you said, it's uncrewed. So it's a demonstration of all the equipment and its capabilities to make sure that we can really do this and demonstrate the efficacy. Artemis 2 is the first manned mission to the moon. Now, it's not to the lunar surface but it is in orbit to the moon. So it's kind of going to be a repeat of Artemis 1, but with humans on board, and then we'll be able to see how this trip to the moon and this longer-term mission takes its effect on the human body. And then, of course, Artemis 3, like you mentioned, that's the big one. That's human landing. And we're shooting 
Uh, we were shooting for 2024, but uh, expected a little bit later, maybe early 2025. Still exciting stuff. Suppose that Artemis II were taking off today. Let's theorize that everything's gone just the way you want it to. What are the crew going to be doing? What's going to be happening? What are some of the firsts? So usually when you think of a trip to the moon, it takes three days. And, you know, some people wonder, well, what are the astronauts doing during that time? Well, actually, you might be surprised they're kind of busy. NASA lines up a full schedule for the crew before they take off to the moon. So they're going to be busy with exercise routines, monitoring, a lot of human health and performance issues. So we want to make sure that the astronauts are safe, that they're healthy, and, you know, that they can perform the mission as expected. We're also going to be tweaking our human safety procedures based on the feedback we get from Artemis too. What really surprised me when I was reading about this was it said that the crew of Artemis II is doing a proximity operations demonstration. How does this work? So proximity demonstration. So a lot of the challenge associated with assembling a space station or a spacecraft in lunar orbit is proximity operations. And that means when you try to dock or interact with another spacecraft, a lot of times you see it in sci-fi movies where you know, they extend a docking port, and it goes over so smoothly. But a lot of this stuff is really difficult. Keep in mind, these things are moving at incredible speeds, thousands of kilometers per second. And you need to get these things that are moving faster than any jetliner to line up and, you know, connect to each other. That's extremely difficult, especially when you're doing it so far away. So we have to make sure that the algorithms are correct, that the systems line up, that all the mechanisms that we tested here on Earth work the same in space. Any creative project is going to evolve up to and including space missions. How has the design of the Artemis mission been evolving and what have you had to do differently within the last year since you and I spoke before? Well, I'll tell you what, there's been a lot of meetings about how we're doing the mission design and, and how we can refine it. The broad strokes haven't changed too much. You know, we're still going to that NRHO, that near rectilinear halo orbit in which the gateway will reside. But there's been some tweaks to the logistics capabilities, and we've been doing a lot of research to see how we can get more cargo and more payload to the gateway and to the lunar surface for less delta V and you know less propellant, cheaper. And so we've looked at a few different things, such as the ballistic lunar transfer and more recently the reverse lunar transfer for lunar sample return. So using these kind of unusual weak stability boundaries, we can exploit those to make a more efficient transfer of goods and services. And of course, you mentioned the other nations before working with us on the Gateway. How are some of them collaborating? This is the exciting part, is that we're getting some serious interest from some of our close partners, such as JAXA and CSA and ESA, so that's the Canadian and European space agencies as well. And they've all signed on to the Artemis Accords, which is our agreement on how we're going to cooperate and explore the moon together. And I mentioned before, you know, all this international cooperation, opening up the gateway to our partners is really important because the more international partners you have on board, the more the mission is insured. You know, the more, the more hands are in there, the more likely it is to succeed in the case of the space mission. Exploring the moon is cool to start with, but what are some of the science goals of the Artemis mission? If it's really successful, what do you bring back and how do you use it? That's a really broad question. A lot of people are interested scientifically in the moon. I mean, for my work, of course, I'm interested in understanding lunar dust a little bit better so that I can ensure the safety of astronauts and crew. And understanding the dust behavior on the moon applies to exploration of the entire solar system. But more than that, we want to learn about the origins of life on Earth. And 
origins of the solar system in general. The moon is kind of like a time capsule in that a lot of the events that took place early in the solar system's history have been sealed into the moon's history. There hasn't been wind or water or erosion on the lunar surface, so we can really look back into the early solar system and get an understanding of that. And as I mentioned before, the Artemis program is a prototype for our exploration of the deeper space destinations, such as Mars. So there's a whole bunch of science that's tied into habitability and sustaining human life on the moon that applies directly to deeper space exploration. Perhaps the most significant one is, I want to remind everyone that when we do the science that we do on the moon, all the technology that we develop feeds back into your daily life. So advancements in solar power technology make green energy more doable here on Earth. And of course, the advancements we make in farming and water and recycling All these things are very necessary to sustain human presence in deep space. But they also play back to having a greener and more sustainable future here on Earth. So the technology we develop at NASA directly benefits not just people in the United States, but all over the world. I realize I'm talking to a maker. You and I, when we spoke before, you mentioned that you had gone to Maker Fair. What is one of the absolute coolest technologies you've seen developed within the last year or so that you can tell me about? I have a lot of cool ideas, but they're just math, you know, (laughs) and I don't think it's as cool to everyone as it is to me. But I think in practical terms, some of the advancements that has been made in spacecraft autonomy, I think just in the past year, SpaceX demonstrated autonomous docking, or right around the time of our last interview. And that's, that's a huge step. I mean, we've had the formulation for that, we've had the math for that, but to see it dock all on its own, that's very reassuring for the future of deep space exploration because when we're setting up the gateway, most of that's going to be done more or less autonomously. So we're going to be watching here on Earth, but because there's this two-second time delay for communication to and from the moon, we're going to have to pretty much watch it happen on its own. So SpaceX's demonstration of that technology is the prototype for building the gateway and beyond. Wow, we've got the ultimate autonomous vehicle here. This is amazing. We haven't said one word about the Artemis Base Camp and what's going to happen when they get to the moon. We covered it briefly last time, but would you tell me a little more in depth about, let's say that Artemis Three happens, you said probably 2025, they're now on the moon. What do they do? So the first mission is, you know, it's kind of establishing, you know, doing some surveying, planting the flag, getting some measurements, gathering some samples, coming home. But that's an important step. That's demonstrating, again, demonstrating the technology, demonstrating the human landing system, and putting people back on the moon. That's, that's the anchor. Now, once we've done that, then we're going to start working on lunar sample collection in situ, which means using the resources on the moon to, to build, to demonstrate technology. Ultimately, the goal here is to do some things like 3D structure printing on the moon. I mean, we've demonstrated this technology here at Kennedy Space Center with what is essentially a big 3D printer arm, and we can print parts and print bases. And so if we can eventually get that on the moon, then we can print our entire habitats, which is just mind-blowing, using the stuff that's already there. Think about all the infrastructure that goes into building a house, right? You have to have the lumber yards. You have to have the people that are making the drywall. They have to make the paint. They have to make the wires, mine the copper for the wires inside the house. That's a lot of infrastructure, and we need to figure out a way to condense that and send that to the moon. And 3D printing really opened up a significant part of that. So we can 3D print the walls and all the insulation, and then all we have to do is bring along some of that electrical wiring and build up the infrastructure from there. 
that comes right back to what you were saying about how what happens in space and happens on the moon directly affects what we can do on Earth. Think of the implications of that for the future here with construction on Earth. That's amazing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, a lot of our mining and resource collection technologies can be very damaging to the environment, especially some of this large surface mining. So if we can develop more efficient ways of recycling and utilizing materials, things that are less destructive, and all that miniaturization that needs to happen to go to the moon and Mars will directly impact how we do business and how we lay our infrastructures here on Earth. And stand by for some exciting opportunities and resources as those Artemis launch dates get closer. Of course, when Artemis takes off, there's definitely going to be some public relations opportunities. So teachers and classrooms are going to be able to interact with the astronauts and ask them questions. And you'll be able to interact with NASA, especially today with all this technology that we have and all the social media. You've seen what we did with the Perseverance landing. That had more cameras on board than any other lander, any other mission that's gone before it. We could actually see the landing of the rover. And, you know, as you mentioned before on your feed, I mean, that, that's amazing. <laughs> to be able to see a landing happening on the planet, uh, an SUV-sized rover dropped by cables from a jet-propelled landing vehicle, you know, seven minutes away in light time, all on its own. <laughs> the difficulty of that and the, the amazing success of that mission is hard to overstate. But that kind of interactivity, that kind of public relations effort is going to be mirrored with the Artemis program. So be on the lookout for chances to interact with the astronauts, interact with Artemis crew, and see what it's like to land on the moon. Wow. Definitely. What has been, and this is going to be a totally unfair question because like asking your favorite child, but what has been one of the moments that has just raised goose flesh on your arms since we talked last year on working on the Artemis program? What's been one of your absolute favorites? There's been a lot of them. You know, seeing continuously seeing the images sent back from Juno, which is still in orbit around Jupiter, is always amazing. You know, always check up on that site because the images that come back from Jupiter are just amazing. But I think what really did it is is what I just mentioned, that landing on Mars. Being able to to watch the lander being dropped from a sky crane, (laughs) it's mind-blowing, absolutely mind-blowing. I would be hard-pressed to imagine that I could watch that in, in video just 10 years ago. It's amazing. I'm very much looking forward to seeing Artemis. This is just going to be unbelievable, the stuff of science fiction. As we wrap up here, Matt, if people could only get one creative lesson from what's been happening the last year about innovation, creativity, and making a difference, courtesy of the Artemis mission, what would you want them to take away? You know, I think with that one, I'm going to say that the most important thing is what we can do when we work together. NASA doing things on its own could only get so far. Our budget isn't what it used to be when you know, comparing it to the Apollo program. But when we engage with our commercial partners and we engage with our international partners and we all share the same goal, then pretty much anything is possible. And I just want to emphasize how NASA couldn't do what it does without the support of not only its commercial and international partners, but the people as well. So if you support our goal, you know, make your vote count and we'll keep doing what we do. Matt, thank you for your time today. No problem. I've definitely enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. You and I have been listening to Matt Wittall, Mission Design and Planetary Science at NASA. Follow NASA on their social media at NASA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest updates on the NASA Artemis Lunar Exploration Program. In addition, if you'd like to read an overview on the NASA Artemis Program, take a look at nasa.gov forward slash specials 
forward slash Artemis, where you'll see a summary of the program and what all the phases are, what's going to be happening. And get ready for some exciting times ahead as NASA brings humanity back to the moon and beyond. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X. And you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com. The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.